Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Welcome to episode 16 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Caitlin Tate. Caitlin is the co-founder of Spark International, a not-for-profit organization devoted to finding, training, and funding entrepreneurs to help bring their communities out of poverty. Following a merger in 2015, Caitlin became Global General Manager of Impact for YGAP, and you may recall we had Elliot Costello, the founder of YGAP, on the show back in episode six. Caitlin is now the director of YHER, focused on supporting female entrepreneurs globally. Caitlin has been described as a woman of immense influence in the Australian international development sector and someone who embodies everything it means to live a life of purpose. Caitlin, thank you for being on the show today. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Okay, so can you start by talking us through the origins of Spark International? Sure. Um, So I think, you know, the idea for Spark really was born out of... um, an experience that my husband and I had, um, back in 2000 and uh, 2007, 2008, um, you know, we were, we both met young, um, in our early twenties and, um, were both separately very passionate about, uh, international development. And, um, my husband studied international development, I studied international education, um, and, were really keen to to go and work in Africa and, and had these sort of big visions of of the the difference we were going to make and um, as you do as a young naive um, you know uni student and we but but we sort of said hey let's let's um, in order to get work in the sector you know you've got to get the experience so um, we actually booked a one way flight to Kenya um, and just before we landed just before the election violence kicked off, um, in 2007. So that was a really interesting time to be there. Um, but we, we ended up staying in Kenya and Tanzania for just under two years, um, working at an orphanage in Kenya and then a secondary school for street kids in Tanzania. And it was really, you know, through that experience of, um, arriving in a place thinking we had the answers or thinking we could make some sort of change in these places. And, um, through a lot of challenging experiences, realizing actually, you know, we are not the ones that are best placed to create this change. Um, that really needed to come from these local communities who understood the challenges and, and what would be, you know, what would, um, be sustainable in, in those contexts, um, far better than we could, could know that. So, uh, yeah, we, we kind of sat down and and we'd met all these amazing local, local people who had great ideas, but didn't really have the, the, um, resources or confidence to get their ideas off the ground. And we said, well, what if there was an organization that existed to, to do that, to find these, these men and women who have, sorry, have (laughs) to find these men and women who have really great, um, ideas and, and support them with funding and training and really whatever they need at that stage, we didn't know. (laughs) Um, and 
and yeah, we, we then took the idea to Cambridge, um, in the UK where my husband was studying and sort of panel beated it there and, uh, and then moved back to Sydney and launched in 2010. Wow. What a journey. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned the election violence in Kenya. We had Annabelle Chauncey on the show two weeks mm-hmm. ago, who you may know. Mm-hmm. Annabelle's the CEO of School for Life Foundation. Yep. And her organisation also originated out of the, the violence in Kenya. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, silver lining on a, on a truly awful mm. situation. But, wow, what a fantastic journey. So, when we had Elliot on the show back in episode six, he talked about the merger of Spark International with YGAP. Mm. And I know Elliot is quite passionate about the not-for-profit sector being more open to mergers and to consolidating mm. when it makes strategic sense, which is an uncomfortable conversation to have sometimes, but you guys obviously nailed it. Um, so can you talk about that merger and why it was such a pivotal moment for both organizations? Um, yeah, so we were at a point where we were uh, getting really great impact from the model, um, but needed to grow. And, and in order to do that, we needed to focus more of our efforts on fundraising. Um, we, we realized, okay, we've got to, you know, either increase our own capacity or look to partner with other organizations who are great at that. And we started thinking about, you know, who, who might we partner with and, um, or did we want to acquire that capacity in another way? Um, you know, hiring a great fundraising manager, but we, we admired the work of YGAP and, and, you know, they were really awesome at, um, building movements and, and bringing young people along on the journey of the, the work that they were trying to do and, um, and raising a lot of money along the way. And so we, we had an early conversation with Elliot, um, about what a partnership might look like, uh, and we decided to, to test it out. So we actually moved down to Melbourne, um, worked out of the same office for a year, uh, and, and tested out a partnership on one of our programs. So they funded one of our South African programs. And, um, you know, yeah, our, our motivation behind it was really, you know, uh, at, at the time YGAP was also looking to sort of shift their supporting social entrepreneurs, which was something we had been doing. Uh, and, and so we said, you know, rather than us fighting for donor dollars and, and, um, trying to achieve the same aim in, in sort of different silos, why not look at, um, working together so, yeah, at the time um, we, when we tested the partnership, there was lots of discussion around what that partnership might look like. And eventually we did decide that the merger was the best way forward. And uh, when we decided that, I think our combined impact was around 37,000 lives improved uh, between both YGAP and Spark. And, um, you know, a year or two into the merger, I think we were already at 180,000 lives improved. So, you know, immediately we saw the impacts of um, bringing these two organizations together and yeah. the, the funding we were able to raise um, and the impact we were able to have uh, was, was manifold what we were able to do alone. Yeah. Wow, fantastic. It's interesting to hear that you eased into that. You said you started by partnering on one project rather than partnering across the entire organization. So is that the advice that you would give to not-for-profits that are looking to consolidate is sort of ease your way into it rather than zero to 100? Definitely. I mean, look, I think to be honest, initially, Aaron and I were really keen to have it moving 
faster. And I think Elliot was as well, but we had boards and volunteers and people we needed to bring along on the journey. And so for a number of reasons, we took it much slower and that was really frustrating for us at times. But in the end, I'm so glad we did. Uh, and I would definitely, um, I guess, yeah, recommend that you, you know, other organizations think about that as well, because there's just so much that you you think you know and think you understand about how this this partnership might play out, but um, there's a lot of, of I guess challenges along the way, and I think getting to know each other as much as you can ahead of time. It's like a marriage, you know. You've got yep. a date for a while. You've got to <laughs> um, make sure it's the right thing, um, and and even then, it's it's the marriage is hard, you know. Like there's still um, things, you know, bringing two people together and sharing a life is is not always easy. So we we definitely face little challenges along the way but ultimately it's been such a great decision for us yeah oh and and the your results as, as an organization exemplify that it's fantastic and one of the most fantastic parts of the organization in my view is why her which is focused mm. on supporting female entrepreneurs to build socially conscious businesses so I have so many questions for you about that. Can we start though? The the first question I had was why do female entrepreneurs need different support to male entrepreneurs? Why can't we just have a one size fits all support approach? I wish we could. Um, but I think unfortunately women have a very different experience of running a business than their male counterparts. Not, not all women. Some women, um, might have a very similar experience, but, uh, unfortunately we know the stats tell us that when they go to raise capital as a female entrepreneur, um, they're able to raise less than half of what, um, their male peers will raise, um, when they're pitching to investors um, they're going to face gender bias and discrimination. Um, you know, gen, uh, uh, investors will see their businesses as less viable, less innovative. Uh, but in reality, actually, that's not true. Um, there's recent research that's come out saying that uh, across 74 different economies, uh, women entrepreneurs actually have a 5% greater likelihood of innovativeness than um, than businesses run by men. So, uh, you know, but on top of that, they're also juggling running the business alongside uh, raising children and, and other domestic um, responsibilities. And I think, you know, personally, I've experienced uh, a different experience of entrepreneurship than my husband did, for example. Um, I struggled with low confidence, you know, comparing myself constantly to other people, you know, a lot of imposter syndrome, um, struggling to promote myself, you know, all of these things. And, and those are relatively, um, you know, simple and, and, you know, uh, challenges that I, I guess are, are not nearly as dire as some of the challenges that women face in some of the countries that we work in, um, you know, not being able to, uh, you know, access uh, or be able to start businesses or, or access certain capital without a signature from your husband, um, you know, things like this that, that we just, I, you know, I can't even imagine. Um, so, yeah, I think there's no question that, that women need um, different support at times to, to work through some of these, uh, unique challenges that they face. Yeah. Um, mm. I had a, uh, attended a gathering recently of different people working in the, the entrepreneurship ecosystem in the region and, and a woman at that, um, event said she would never have a female entrepreneur pitch to investors. And in an ideal world, we would not have, we would not be asking women to pitch in the traditional mm. sense. Um, on that topic, what are some of the 
the challenges that women face specifically receiving investment in their businesses? And is it that that's just often a hostile environment or sort of what are the challenges? Well, I think um, in general, women, particularly when they're pitching alongside men, um, they're more, they come across as, as less, um, compelling for a number of reasons. I think, um, one men are, are often able to, or, or more confident and, and sort of focused on all the, the wonderful things about their business and the, and the model. Whereas women are often more honest about the shortcomings of their model or, you know, where they, they are weak. And, um, sometimes that can be, uh, a challenge for them, but oftentimes actually it's, it's a, an investor should look at it as uh, a really positive thing because that, that entrepreneur is being really honest about exactly where their business is. And maybe that's actually a more viable investment than the one that is just sort of peacocking how wonderful the business is and not really telling you where some of the gaps might be. Um, but yeah, so that's one thing. And actually that's one of the reasons, um, that we, uh, are really passionate about um, the peer review model that we use in our accelerator. So th- they've actually identified that this peer review um, is a great tool to use to kind of combat that um, investor bias uh, because it's actually not the investors who are making the decision of where the capital goes. It's the peer, the peers. So um, we've used that for a number of years. It's um, pioneered by Village Capital. Um, but yeah, so that's that's one way that we're trying to sort of uh, combat that. But you know, the, the, I think they they so they face that investor bias. So uh, investors perceive them as less ca- capable, less likely to succeed, partially because that's what it looks like in the marketplace. There's not that many women-led businesses succeeding, so that you know male investors think that that's probably not going to be that likely to succeed if others there aren't that many out there. Um, interestingly, you know, uh, male investors also look down upon um, some of the traits that they actually look for in founders when they see them in women, things like confidence and aggression. Um, and that doesn't play in, in women's favor, unfortunately. Um, there's also things like in, um, industry bias. So, um, you know, a lot of women focus on particular industries when they're starting a business or more commonly working in, in certain industries. Um, and those industries are seen as less compelling than, you know, tech or, um, finance, you know, fintech, um, cryptocurrency, things like this that are are a little bit more attractive, um, to investors. And, uh, unfortunately sometimes that's even because they're male dominated that they, they become of value. Um, Mm. yeah, that's, that's really interesting. It raises somewhat of an existential question for me, which is, should we be asking female entrepreneurs to adopt more masculine qualities or should we be asking investors to be open to more feminine qualities or is it neither? Oh, I definitely don't think we should be um, asking women to be more masculine. I think, you know, women have fallen into that trap for many years and I think we should, um, but, and likewise, I think men, yeah, men should be looking at, okay, what is, what's the value here? I, th- I think we sometimes get too caught up in, in masculine feminine, you know, we should just look for, for the value in, in the business. And, um, but we've got those biases and they're hard to, hard to overcome. Um, I, I actually think the more we can educate investors around their own biases and understanding, um, why they might be drawn to one entrepreneur over another, uh, is actually one of the best ways to, to help, um, change this this scenario for women um just so that investors are really asking themselves tough questions every time they're making a decision and um 
we are were involved in some training last year uh, through the Criterion Institute and the Pacific Rise Initiative here in Australia um, around gender lens investing, um, which is is really exciting and and it's a way to sort of um, help the the industry uh, really look at okay how are we um, how is are our investment decisions impacting women not only in who we invest in but the impact those businesses are having on women yeah right yeah yeah there's a lot of work in the sector happening with gender lens investment isn't there and criterion institute has really led the way on mm. that it's it's very interesting and and i mean unconscious bias I am so pleased to see how how often that comes up in conversations these days. But when you're having a conversation with an investor and you're trying to educate them on unconscious bias, mm-hmm. how do you have that conversation? Yeah, I mean, look, I, it's not an easy conversation to have, but I think the more that we can highlight, at least, you know, as YGAP, who is an investor into these ventures, yeah, there's a lot of other things that need to happen Um you know, I think part of it is also about educating women around their, the, not necessarily asking them to be more masculine, but just giving them training in certain things that might not come naturally to them, like negotiation, um, or being able to promote themselves and, and ask for more funding and, and things like this when they might, uh, that is not something that they've necessarily had experience in or feel comfortable doing. Uh, and, and I don't think that would be classified necessarily as making them become more masculine. Uh, it's just around the skills that they need to, um, to tackle those all male boardrooms. Mm. Yep. Yep. Definitely. Okay. So talking about the business model of why her, why her doesn't ask for equity in the businesses that you support nor do you charge the women to participate in the program. So how does that financial model work? So um, it's a tough one, to be honest. We've, it's something that we've struggled with for many years, like as, as YGAP in general and, and before that as Spark International. We uh, have always wanted to find a really sustainable model, um, but the, the nature of, of um, the fact that we're working with very early stage ventures that are really at the grassroots level trying to create change. Um, it's, it, we can't charge a whole lot for the program if we're going to charge them. Um, and we have trialed it before. Uh, so, but if we did charge, you know, what we think they could afford, uh, it ends up not helping us out all that much. Um, so we've actually chosen to be more innovative in the way that we raise funds uh, through, you know, innovative fundraising campaigns, our own social enterprises, partnering with really smart and generous individuals and organizations who care about the work that we do um, and, and generating our own revenue through um, consulting and things like that to, in order to fund our program. So, and initially we don't take equity in the business to participate in the program, but we are moving into making investments um, and taking equity, but that's more through our growth program. Uh, so that, that is some, a, a one way where we're trying to, um, yeah, recycle that funding for, for further entrepreneurs, um, in yeah. future. And I think YGAP has really led the way with innovative social enterprises in Australia. Um, I was telling Elliot when he was on the show that Feast of Merit is my absolute favorite cafe. And mm. I used to frequently go there when I lived in Melbourne and, um, yeah, for any listeners wanting to learn more about that, YGAP has a fascinating social enterprise model, so you can hear more about that in episode six. 
Um, what I wanted to get onto, compared to other parts of the world, I want to talk about how Southeast Asia and the Pacific rate for supporting entrepreneurs. I recently discovered the the Entrepreneurship Index, which is by the Getty Institute, I think, um, and that rates different countries of the world for how receptive the entrepreneurship ecosystem is to to supporting entrepreneurs. So in your experience, I know that you're working across Africa, Southeast Asia and the Pacific and Bangladesh as well. Um, how does Southeast Asia and the Pacific rate for supporting entrepreneurs? Sure. So being really honest, we in, in terms of Southeast Asia, we're really only working in Bangladesh. So I'm not super familiar with the whole region. Um, but in terms of, um, I, I think in Asia in general, um, I think the, the ecosystem has, has developed a bit more than say the Pacific, um, but maybe not quite as much as Africa at this stage. And that, that's an assumption I'm making. Um, I, and from my own experience in Bangladesh, for example, uh, I know India does have a really strong, um, ecosystem there. And we, we actually, uh, thought about going to India and, and went and did some scoping and realized that actually there's plenty of organizations working at the level that we work and, and we were not needed there. Um, we, we felt that there were other places, um, like Bangladesh who, that had a, a much, uh, more nascent ecosystem that, that we could go in and, and make more of an impact. So, um, in Bangladesh, look, there, there are some, uh, some other accelerators and incubators out there. There are not that many focusing on social, the social sector. Um, and actually in terms of our, um, female focused program, why her is the first, uh, female focused accelerator in the country. And one of the first in the region, I think there's maybe one other in India, um, and, and one in somewhere in Southeast Asia. But, um, so that, that's, that's exciting to be playing in that space, um, as one of the early players, but, uh, you know, in, in terms of the Pacific, that's definitely, I'm much more familiar with that. Um, and, you know, having, having started actually in the Pacific, cause we spark international actually launched in PNG, we, or we tested, um, our, the model in, in Papua New Guinea. And it was, you know, through the early days of that, which it was actually a perfect place to test because it was really tough. There was no ecosystem whatsoever, um, that we were aware of anyway. And, um, and it was, you know, off track on every single millennium development goal. It was just a really tough place to work at the time. And, um, we, we started there and, and had some good success. And, and really at the time, you know, an accelerator that didn't, wasn't even in our vocabulary. We didn't really know what that was. We knew we were going in to try and find these early stage local leaders, um, and, and give them the support and, and some funding that they needed to get ideas off the ground. Um, and it was not until a few years into the work that we realized, oh, this is sort of a, a movement and that's actually what we're doing. Um, but, uh, the Pacific is, is yeah, much more early stage in terms of the ecosystem and uh, in in the uh, islands that we were working with through Waiher, um, you know, I think it's there's a lot of female entrepreneurs out there, but they're not necessarily um, classifying themselves as a social entrepreneur. It's, it's you know, a little less, there's not as much um, infrastructure and there definitely aren't very many accelerators and incubators in the region. Um, and, and we are the first uh, that are doing a female focused program. Yeah. 
That raises a really interesting point for me, actually. You're saying people may not classify themselves as entrepreneurs. So we know in the Pacific, I've worked quite a lot in the Pacific and, you know, women may have a, a roadside stand selling some handicrafts or some fruit. Um, mm-hmm. Would she consider herself an entrepreneur with a business model that could be scaled? Or, mm. you know, how are we defining entrepreneurship? Right. Well, I mean, I think I think she should, um, but I think that's half of the work that we do actually um, is getting a group of women together um, and and helping them understand or, or think bigger about what they what they're doing uh, with their business and and what the potential of that business might be. Um, so the first couple, the first day of the accelerator is really all about kind of. Uh, yeah, inspiring them to to think beyond their their immediate community and think about what what could this be and and showing them you know examples of other individuals and you know because I think often they come to us and they they there's a sense of uh, who am I to to create this change because I'm only one person and and I have a small team and how can I actually affect real significant change and yeah, our job is to, to show them examples of, of individuals who have done that, uh, and, and have gone on to, to create massive change. And I mean, um, in Bangladesh, you know, we use the example of Muhammad Yunus as, as the sort of godfather of social enterprise who as an individual changed a whole system. Um, so, you know, there's huge potential for individuals to, to create change. And, and that is a major shift in their mindset to go from sort of a dependency on, international NGOs and the government to create this big change and realizing actually, no, I I can create change. Mm. Okay. So with that in mind, how does the way that you operate differ between say Bangladesh, a small island state in the Pacific and a country in Africa? So it actually, um, you know, doesn't differ as much as you might assume um we we hire local people in each of the countries where we work so um we in each of the countries where we work we hire local um managers um to to ensure that the the program is locally relevant so uh, our general curriculum we call it the change maker journey uh it's it's pretty transferable between regions it's really all, all about creating a space um for the, the entrepreneurs in the room to um, to support and guide each other around what is going to work best in, in their particular context. Uh, so we don't we don't pretend to, to know that. Uh, but but the way we do go about delivering the content might change slightly, um, or we might include additional sessions um, to address local challenges or concerns. Um, in the Pacific, for example, uh, there's you, I'm sure you're familiar with the one talk. Um, system. So, you know, there's a, this is collective spirit that means that there's often a family obligation um, to, you know, to give back. And uh, particularly if a business is successful, that can, that can be tricky for, for that um, person to, to sort of separate business and, and personal um, when they have that obligation there. And so that was something that we discussed through the interview process with the participants to understand sort of what their um, feelings were around that and, and how they managed that. Um, and, and it was something that we discussed at the accelerator as well. So that's, that's one example in Bangladesh. Um, you know, we also run the program slightly differently. Um, we have a more formal event because they, in, in Bangladesh, they, they like to, um, have, 
you know, they've got lots of great connections. So we have um, lots of important people come along to the event and it's a more formal event there because that's really important in Bangladesh. Whereas in, in Africa and, and um, the Pacific, it's, yeah, we definitely do um, shift and change things slightly based on local context, but uh, the core of the curriculum for the most part stays the same. Okay, cool. And I think the point you raised about working with local staff wherever possible is really important and and having local facilitators I think was what you said yeah 100 percent. so I mean we really um we like I said we don't pretend to know what's going to work in the local context we hire local people who um we trust to to make the adjustments that they see fit uh to the curriculum or the way we run the program uh, to ensure that it is locally relevant Mm. Okay, I think there's two questions I want to ask you before we finish up today. So uh, a major purpose of this podcast is looking at how the private sector can play a more meaningful role in development. Um, with the areas of impact investment, it's a lot more obvious than in other areas. Naturally, we, we want to be able to leverage private sector capital to fund great ideas and support entrepreneurs in the region. And and. Uh, and there is a lot of a lot of discussion on that already. So um, I suppose I'll give you a choice in this question. <laughs> you can either comment on that, or if you see other ways that the private sector can support why her and female entrepreneurs in the region more broadly, what would that be? Yeah. Look. So I think there's definitely a role to play, um, and you know we're actually working with um, some private sector companies. Uh, particularly around, um, you know, both getting involved in, in funding some of the programs, but um, in, in also returning that value and, and getting some of those employees involved in the program. So as mentors, as guest facilitators, um, and that's a really powerful way to feed into the program for us because we are, uh, particularly Why Her, we, um, because we're running regional programs in Africa and the Pacific, we don't have a local office that provides the ongoing support like we do in some of our other country programs. So we've opted for a mentorship program in, in the place of the ongoing support, which in, included small grants and um, some more face-to-face support. Um, and so with the mentorship program, we're, we're constantly looking for really strong mentors that we can connect our entrepreneurs with um, that have experience or expertise in, in particular industries or, um, you know, are just really great at helping the entrepreneurs with their financials or the legal concerns or whatever that might be. So um, that's a really powerful way to feed into the into YHER and, and YGAP Um but in terms of the, the your comment on um, impact investing and how you know, I think that is a really powerful way. Um, you know, the the more uh, the better our entrepreneurs do it, through their businesses, the more lives they improve, and um, the more you know we are, are happy that 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 impact is being created. That's why we exist. So, um, you know, I think we would just recommend or, or encourage the private sector to to see these businesses uh, these you know, particularly at the early stages, see them as, as serious businesses, invest in them, buy their products, you know, consider joint ventures or, you know, um, investments and, or buying their companies. Don't just see it as, as a CSR move, um, but actually see them as really powerful levers for change. Well said. Exactly. I I couldn't agree more. Okay. Let's finish on an inspiring note. What Mm -hmm. is one impact story? that has really stood out to you in recent years? 
Gosh, this is the hardest question because honestly, there's so many, like I could tell you the story of any of the entrepreneurs really, and they're, they're all amazing. Um, but I think maybe I'll focus on a couple of, of female led ventures. Um, uh, the first one, um, it was actually the winner of our funding from last year, uh, in Africa, uh, her name's Phyllis and she runs an organization called MScan. Um, so in Uganda, she works in Uganda and, um, in Uganda, around 16 mothers die every day due to complications relating to birth. Um, and uh, one of the major issues is that women are not able to get to, uh, they're not going to as many prenatal appointments as, as you know, you or I might do here uh, in Australia, and and lots of issues are going uh, aren't, aren't getting picked up um, uh, through something like a an ultrasound, um, and and particularly the women in the rural areas um, aren't able to access that technology. So uh, she's actually created a mobile um, ultrasound scan. Um, that that can get out to, to these remote areas and and pick up complications um, and so they've they've run a, a few camps over the last um, year and and are, are picking up you know life-threatening conditions in these women and and the babies um, and and being able to refer them to medical care immediately um, so that's that's really exciting for me also having just had a, a baby um, you know you really understand that the, the emotions going through a, a, a woman as she's getting ready to give birth and uh, understanding that there might be something wrong or not being able to to check uh, and understand what that is um, it, you know we it's it's a technology that we take for granted and it's really exciting to see that uh, you know, organizations like MScan are getting that out there. Um, the other the story that I love that we, I guess we've been talking about a lot. So, you know, some of your listeners might have heard if they're familiar with YGAP, but, um, one of our ventures who came through the program a few years ago now is still one of the ventures that we're, we're most excited about, um, running in South Africa. Um, her name is Noni, uh, and she runs the African school for excellence and, they are, you know, she's a, a girl from, from a township in, in South Africa and was really passionate about um, the fact that children from the townships weren't getting quality education and so decided to start a school, um, which was really ambitious. But her school is now getting better um, results or as good results as um, the top schools in the UK. Uh, and, and she's doing it at a fraction of the cost, you know, um, really affordable, high quality education for kids from the townships in, in, um, South Africa. And she's doing it all with really, um, sort of 21st century learning, um, you know, problem-based, uh, learning and, um, inquiry-based learning and really, really exciting model. Uh, and she's managed to, um, work out a way to kind of capitalize on the teacher's time so that, uh, they can keep costs down. So they sort of use a lot of, um, staff to come in and sort of prep the, the students before a lesson, get the teacher to come in, do the lesson, and then get a different teacher, uh, sort of a support teacher to come in and, and help them apply the learnings, um, uh, so that the teacher can actually roam around and, and um, yeah, capitalize on that so uh, to keep the cost down. So really exciting model that we think has the potential to scale uh, massively. So we're, we're really excited to be supporting them. Wow. Two amazing enterprises, MScan and the African School for Excellence. Mm -hmm. Incredible. 
Wow. That is a fantastic note to end on, Caitlin. This has been so inspiring and I was already incredibly enthusiastic about YGAP, but I'm even more enthusiastic now. So thank you so much oh, for, for sharing your wisdom and your insights and it's fantastic to have you on the show. No worries. Thanks for having me. 